Before we get started, Kevin asked me if I would uh, remind you to open your Grace Chapel bulletin here. And uh, there are some service opportunities that are available. And if you would take a look and read through those and uh, maybe find something that you can uh, help and lend your talents to, uh, talk to Kevin if you have questions about that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness, the goodness that allowed your son to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you for being a good God, and may we remember that as we go through this passage in 1 Peter, and as we understand what it is that you want us to know and how you want us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. A long time ago, someone either wrote or I, I heard it somewhere, uh, they compared a Christian to a, a tea bag. Have you heard that before? A Christian is like a tea bag, uh, not worth much until he's been through hot water. Right? You've heard that? I guess you haven't. It's not meant to be funny. It's just a statement. Uh, and the, the point is, you know, it reveals who you are. And when we talk about a Christian, when we talk about a person who is a follower of Jesus Christ, someone who has decided that he is someone with whom they want to identify. Uh, that's what we mean by a Christian. And the good news, bad news scenario this morning is, first of all, the bad news. And the bad news is that if you decide that you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if you say, you know what, the cross is sufficient for me, I can't save myself, I need him to save me, and you begin that journey that does not end the troubles and trials and suffering in your life. That's the bad news. Sometimes people think that. Sometimes that's even preached. You can turn on TV and you can uh, hear various preachers that will uh, expel that and say, you know what, you do this and you will not have any troubles. That's not true. That's not true. And we'll get to why here in just a little bit. The good news, however, is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. That's the good news. And the reason why that's the good news is because Peter says, you know what, we're, we're going through this period, and he's addressing these readers specifically there and us now. He's saying we're going through this period of suffering, trials, and troubles, and this is how you need to act. This is what you need to do in order to survive it. And not just survive in the sense of, Oh, thank, thank goodness I made it. But survive in the fa fact that this is where I am, this is what God has for me, and I'm going to be victorious through it. Okay? Now, it doesn't eliminate it, but it just allows us to get through it. And so if you will take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, you'll see five ways to deal with suffering. Five ways to deal with suffering. And when we talk about suffering, it's all different things. It's some, you know, human things, physical things that happen just because we're growing older. There are some things that happen because other people come into your life and create chaos for you. There are things that happen in life that, that just seem to trouble you, to, to create suffering in your mind. And so when Peter talks about those things, he says, you know what? We are going to get through it, and these are the ways we're going to get through it. The first way to get through it is found in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 13, he says this, uh, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? So the first way to survive suffering is passionately do good. Passionately do good. Peter starts with a rhetorical question. You know what a rhetorical question is, right? The answer is obvious. 
It's like when I put a tie on the morning and stand before my wife and she says, you're not going to wear that tie with that, are you? I know the answer. What's the answer? The answer is no, you're not going to do that. Uh, Peter does the same thing here. This is a rhetorical question. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? The answer is no one. No one. If you are eager to do good, no one's going to harm you. And he uses this word harm in the sense of kind of destructive. Now, you may be hurt by the things in life, but you will not be destroyed by them. You will not be harmed by them, is what Peter's saying. And he says, if you are eagerly doing good, no one's going to harm you. No one's going to hurt you. And he uses the word zealous. So if you see the word eager, it's the word zealous. Now, we know what zealous is, right? Being sold out for something. You know, it's kind of like a, a, a fanatic or a fan. You, you know people that fit in that category. They have their college team, their professional team. And usually when we think of a zealot, we think in terms of sports. Well, when Peter writes this word zealot, the people who are listening and reading this, they are thinking of zealots, which was a group of people who were completely sold out to the idea of we are not going to allow the occupying empire to get a foothold here. And so a zealot was willing to give up ease of life, comfort of home, friends, family, and do whatever they could to keep Rome from getting a foothold in Israel. In fact, the zealots carried these small little knives with them that were very sharp, and they would often use them as kind of sneak attacks and things like that. And that's probably what Peter pulled when he cut off the ear of Malthus in the garden. Remember when Jesus, the soldiers approached him and Peter pulls out a knife and cuts off the ear of Malthus? It was probably a knife that he had gotten from Simon the zealot, who was one of the disciples. Now think about this for just a moment. This is an aside. Matthew was a tax collector. He was a disciple. Who did the tax collectors work for? The occupying empire. Simon the zealot wants to keep the occupying empire from... Can you imagine what it must have been like when they got together? Matthew and Simon talked. It didn't matter. You know why? Because they were with Jesus. And when Jesus is there, everybody gets along, right? But anyway, so what he's saying here, be zealous for doing good. Be zealous. And he uses the word good here in, in saying, you know, just whatever we are involved in with, with life, kindness, gentleness, goodness, those kinds of things that come from it. We are zealous, eager. We love goodness with the passionate intensity with which those who were fanatical patriots love their country. We are fanatical about doing good. Now let's pause again. And when we talk about doing good, oftentimes when you are in a church setting, immediately we say, you need to eagerly do good. Everyone thinks, okay, I'm going to the city gospel mission. Okay, I'm going to Mexico. Okay, I'm going to Nigeria. Those are good things, but Paul, Peter's not talking about that. He's talking about looking at the person who's next to you and being good to them. The person that's with you at work. The person that rides in the car with you to work. The person that's in that cubicle next to you. The person that comes into your classroom. Being good to them. You see, it is very sometimes easier for us to imagine, okay, you know what, I'm going to go to Mexico. Nobody knows me. I can do whatever I want to there. And it's going to be great. And then I can come back and be whatever I want to be. And so Peter's saying, let's avoid that by realizing that we're talking about life. Eager to do good in life right here with those. This is a hard one, though. Because who is it hardest to show Jesus' love to? those that are closest to you. But Peter says you need to be a fanatic about doing good and about uh, showing good goodness to those around you. He says in verse 13, he says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Who's going to harm you? 
We are zealous to do good, even to those that are closest. We are doing good, but that doesn't mean we're going to be persecuted. That doesn't mean the suffering stops. But what it does mean is that when the persecution comes, we're able to withstand it because we've been doing good. You know, this Peter's not saying, okay, you can withstand the persecution in spite of however you live. He's saying passionately pursue good things. There is an example of this a couple of, uh, probably last week, Tony Dungy. He came out and he said of Michael Sam, I wouldn't have drafted him because he would have been a distraction. And the immediate outcry by some was, you know, Tony Dungy, what a horrible human being he is. But over time, what happened was people said, this is Tony Dungy. He's a great man. He's a good man. And his equity that he had built on doing good came forward and the criticism died. Okay? And that's what Peter is alluding to here. Zealously pursue doing good things so that when the attacks come, you can withstand that because you've been doing good. And so he says passionately do things that are good. Now notice what he says here in verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, if you should suffer... If I'm doing good, why would others persecute me, you ask? Well, there are several things to this idea of suffering that happens here. First of all, uh, suffering comes just because of your humanity. I alluded to that in the introduction. And just because of your growing old in this world, there are going to be limitations that happen to you. Uh, I remember when I was in college, my freshman year, uh, we had basketball tryouts. And I was running sprints next to a senior and his, he, he was captain and all that. And we were running sprints. And I remember when the sprints ended, we ran to the bleachers. And he was like hacking up a lung and spitting. And I mean, he was just worn out. And he looked at me and he said this. He said, the old gray mare, she just ain't what she used to be, you know. And so there are some things in life that you suffer just because your body is breaking down because of your age. There are other things that happen. Suffering comes because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. You you see, sometimes your righteousness rubs people the wrong way. Why is that? Well, because they're going in this direction and you want to go this direction. And so you rub them the wrong way. And that creates suffering and troubles. What happens when you go into a dark room and you turn on a light? People are like, oh, turn the light off. It's too bright. That's your presence when you're doing good. You walk into the darkness of others' lives and you create this kind of a thing where they're like, hey, you know, can you just... Turn it down a little bit. It's the idea here of, of you are doing good, and so as a result, your very presence creates this kind of dynamic or this problem. Living like one who has experienced the joys and the understanding of the redemption of Jesus Christ is the one who wants to do good. You are eager, you are zealous to do good in spite of what may come. Passionately, Pursue those things that are good. The second way to kind of get through suffering and to handle the troubles and trials of life, Peter talks about in verse 14. He says, we are partaking in suffering, and it's a privilege. It's a privilege. Stay with me. You're thinking, boy, I'm really privileged today because of all the suffering. But stay with me, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. For even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Now, again, let's uh, look at what's happening here. Peter says, if you suffer for what is right. Now, if you're late for work, you don't turn in your projects, you don't do what you're supposed to, and people are beating up on you and saying, you know, this guy ought to be fired, don't pull the Christian card. And say, you know what, I'm a Christian and they just don't like me. 
no, you're a bad worker. We need to get rid of you. Okay? So be careful when you are analyzing this because Peter says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you're doing right, you are blessed. You are blessed. Now, oftentimes when we see the word blessed, we think happy, giddy. Peter is not saying you ought to be giddy about all the troubles you're in. That's not what he's saying. Instead, he is taking a cue from Matthew who said that Mary was blessed. And she, when he talked about Mary being blessed, she was privileged. Remember that? And that's what Peter is saying here. Peter is saying, you are privileged. You suffer for doing what is right because you are the object of special divine favor. You are privileged. You see, when you're going through the troubles and struggles of life, you are going through them as a child of God, privileged to be able to experience what is happening. And again, some of you are sitting there and you're saying, you know what, I, I'm feeling too privileged this morning. And I would rather not go through this, but please make sure that you maintain the perspective that when you are going through these troublesome times, you are not being neglected. That's often our feeling, isn't it? We're thinking, where is God? Why isn't he here? We're feeling neglected, and that's the wrong thing. The right thing is we are privileged to be in a position where God is doing something in our lives. Now, the privilege comes because of this. First of all, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, it talks about sharing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Now, think about that. We are just like Christ when we suffer for doing good. We're just like Christ. That's a privilege to be like him, to be counted worthy, to be in a position with him. In 1 Peter, he talks about uh, it's not for now, but for the future glory. The reason why we're going through the trouble sometimes is because God has something more for us. You see, the book of 1 Peter is written to people who were living in a life then, but were anticipating the life of heaven. And so you, you always have to maintain an eternal perspective. And so when we're going through suffering, the privilege is it's not just about now, it's about the future as well. And so when we're going through the difficult times, uh, the sufferings that are there, it is a privilege because it allows us to identify with Christ and his sufferings. It allows us to understand that we are going to uh, have greater glory because of what we're going through. And the third thing, and, and I think sometimes we forget this, is that we are going through these things so that we can help somebody else. We go through the suffering so that we can help someone else. You see, suffering's purpose is to teach, to break to sometimes even scar us and to touch us like nothing else. There is nothing like troubles and trials and suffering to turn us into the people that we need to be to be able to reach out to those around us and, and help them. Sometimes we forget and we aren't able to do what we need to do in helping others. Persecution, suffering to make us available for someone else. There was an author, his name was Joe Bailey. He wrote the, the book Gospel Blimp, and he also wrote the, the, the book The Last Things We Talked About. And Joseph Bailey had a child die 18 days after it was born because of a surgery that didn't go right. Uh, Joseph Bailey had a, a uh, son die uh, at age 5 because of leukemia. Joseph Bailey had a child at age 18 that was... Uh, killed in a sledding accident. So he knew something about pain. And he, he writes this, he says, I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly and said things I knew were true. I was unmoved except to wish he would go away. And he finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. 
He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. When we have experienced the sufferings that come in life, we are able to help others by sitting there and identifying with them and quietly taking them through it. You see, we forget that suffering is not a problem that needs solved. (laughs) Suffering is something that we go through to grow from and to be changed by. Suffering for doing good. Don't attempt to explain it, to minimize it, but to go through it and to treat it as though God is there with you. You see, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, he talks about joy unspeakable and full of glory. Why can he do that? Because he understood this idea of being privileged, privileged to suffer and to go through these things. And notice what happens in verse 14. He writes, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Then he says, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. What he does is he takes a, a, a phrase out of uh, the book of Isaiah. Uh, I, I think it's Isaiah chapter 8. I'm not, I don't remember. I should have written it down. I thought I'd remember it. But I think it's Isaiah chapter 8. And in Isaiah chapter 8, what's happening is the, the king of Judah is having some trouble and the king of Israel and the king of Syria say, let's get together and fight the king of Assyria. And the king of Judah says to the king of Israel and the king of Syria, I'm not going to do that. And then he goes behind their backs and makes an alliance with the king of Assyria, thinking that that will protect me. And Isaiah, who is the prophet at that time, goes to the king of Judah and says, you have made a big mistake because you have entered into an alliance with someone whose fears are not your fears, who doesn't understand this whole theocracy and this whole thing of God being involved. And you have made a bad alliance. And so what Peter does is he takes that and he says, you know what? He says, don't make a bad alliance. And notice how he says it. He says, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. As you are going through trials and sufferings, don't make an alliance with someone because you already have God on your side. Because when you make an alliance with someone, oftentimes their fears are not the fears that represent an understanding of who God is and what he can do. And so Peter says, when you're going through this, understand this privilege of being a part of what God wants. So this morning, we want to get through, we want to survive, but more importantly, we want to be different as a result of the sufferings that come because of our goodness before God. The third way to handle suffering is found in verse 15. He writes this, he says, uh, but in your heart, set apart or revere Christ as Lord. The third way is to place Christ as preeminent, preeminent, preeminent means it's he's first in everything that we do. Christ is preeminent. And that's what he talks about here in verse 15. But in your hearts, set apart or revere Christ as Lord. Now, sometimes what happens is we love this, right? We love this idea. Jesus, save me from my sins. We love that. That's a wonderful thing. But we forget then that when he saves us from our sins, he then is Lord of our lives and we do what he wants us to do. And so as we continue in this world, we are trusting and engaging him and what he wants. But see, too many times we say, you know what, you've got the eternity taken care of. 
I'll do the rest. And Peter says, no, when you're going through the sufferings of life, you need to make sure that he is preeminent, that he is in this set apart position. Uh, and, And notice where it happens. It happens in your heart. Now, all of those people that were listening and reading this, when they see the word heart, they think of guts. They think, think, think of your internal organs. They think of the very depths inside of you. And so the very thing that's inside of you that drives you, that gives you that gut feeling, that's what says Christ is preeminent. So inside of you, all inside of you, you're saying Christ is preeminent. He is first place. He is my first consideration. He is my first realization. He is inside of me. And so whatever I decide to do, I do based upon what he would want me to do. Too many times it's about convenience, isn't it? What's going to be the easiest thing for me to do? Or it's about profitability. How will this benefit me right now? And we forget about the benefits in the future. Uh, The first consideration is, what is it that God would have me to do? You see, if our heart's priority is earthly treasures, ease, comfort, gathering things in this world, then when they're gone, we have nothing. But if our our heart's desire is Christ and him preeminent, then we go through times and we may lose something. It's okay because we still have him. So we place Christ as preeminent. So to get through suffering, we passionately do good. We understand suffering as a privilege. We place Christ as preeminent. And look at verse 15. He goes on to say, we prepare to share what we know. Notice what he says. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Uh, Always be prepared. Be ready always. Now, understand context. Okay, In context, what's he talking about giving an answer to? You're suffering, right? Because what should happen when we go through suffering, if we have done what's right, if we put Christ first, if we have all of these things set up, then people will see something in your life that's different. Why have you not fallen apart? Why has your life not unraveled? Well, let me tell you about the hope that I have in Christ Jesus. That's in context what he's talking about. Now, of course, there's a broader context because he says, he says here, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Uh, the greater context here is this idea of an apology. You know, apologetics, Christian apologetics. The answer, uh, this isn't the official standing trial, so therefore we're ready to give an answer. This is kind of a general sense of wherever you are in life. If someone stops you and says, what do you believe? Can you give them an answer? Can you tell them why you have the hope? Uh, we, we have to be careful here because when he, he says this, sometimes we get off on hobby horses. You know what I mean? Like instead of studying the whole word of God, we study one thing and we can't wait for someone to ask us about that one thing so that we can really put them down. Right. He's saying whatever, whoever, whenever, be ready to share with them the hope that you have. Why is it that you believe what you believe about Jesus Christ? Uh, We have some great uh, resources. Ravi Zacharias, I don't know if you've ever listened to anything Ravi Zacharias does. He is a great apologetics guy. Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York. His stuff is everywhere you can read, and he's very apologetic in what he does. Um, There's a guy, his name's Eric Metaxas. 
and he also does great work. So if you, you know, to get into more those kinds of debates and arguments, that's, you know, uh, something you can get into and read. But notice what he says. He says, to give the reason, the hope, and then he says this. He says, with uh, meekness and fear. Meekness in fear. The word um, gentleness here is the word meekness. And uh, what he's talking about here is power under control. It's used of a sail. If you have a mighty wind, and if you can pop up the sail and control the wind in the sail, that's beneficial, right? And that's the same idea. Your reason and your understanding of what God has done in your life, if you can deliver that message with control, with this spirit of gentleness and meekness, that's a good thing. And he uses the word uh, fear in verse uh, 15. He says, but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. That's the word reverence. And it's often used of God. So follow me and, and think about this. If someone comes to you and says, why do you believe what you believe? We give them a logical, reasonable explanation of what we believe. And we do it with meekness under control and fear as though we are delivering the message to God. Do you scream and yell at God? Do you rage and debate God? You say, sometimes when I get really mad. Well, that's probably not the best way, right? And so what Peter is saying is, as you approach God, that's how you approach these people that are asking you these questions. No matter what you may think of them and their ideas and their questions, when they ask them, you reply with meekness, and the same fear that you would give to God, the same respect. Now, here's the bad thing. They will not treat you that way. I have been alive for, you know, 114 years, and I'm telling you, this is the most, uh, this period in life is where those that are against what you are are the most kind of vitriolic towards you. They really don't want to hear what you're saying. So don't expect them to respond with meekness and reverence because they're not going to. This is a period in history where the pendulum is swung to the side where if you disagree with someone, there is something wrong with you. Dissent is what our country is built on. If we didn't have dissent, we would still be under the rule of England, right? And so dissent is a part of what we... And, but that is dying right now. No one's allowed to have an opinion unless it's their opinion. So when you are dealing with this, don't expect to them to reciprocate this, but make sure you deliver it. Make sure you deliver the, the meekness and the respect uh, so that the message does not get drowned out in what's going on. Peter is helping us handle suffering. The fifth way he says to us is to practice purity of mind. Uh, look at what he says in verse 16. He says, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you and your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He says to them, he says, keeping a clear conscience. Now, think about your conscience. Your conscience is that thing that tells you and sets off the alarms, right? It sets off the alarm. This is bad. This is good. This sets off the things and helps you drive in certain ways. The Bible talks about the conscience a lot. Uh, Paul talks about a defiled conscience. Uh, Paul is also the one that talks about a seared conscience. You know, sometimes what happens is our conscience gets cluttered with things. 
uh, it should be like a, a clear running water where the, the words of Scripture and the things of Christ, because we've made him preeminent, those things fill our minds so that we have a clear, pure conscience. When I was 16, I went out to California, and I worked in a place called Norden, California, uh, at a place called Sugar Bowl. It was a ski resort, and in the summer they do a lot of stuff to get ready for it. My uncle worked there, and so he thought that I needed to be out there. So I went out there, and we would work four days a week, and uh, ten-hour days, and then we would have three days off. And we would hike in the Sierra Mountains. It was absolutely gorgeous. And he would take me places, and he would say, okay, now we're going to go see this, and he would tell me, and we would anticipate it. This one time he said, I'm going to take you to a place, and it will be the purest, cleanest water, and you can drink it, and it's just gorgeous. And so we hiked, and we hiked, and we hiked, and we got to the place, and it was dry. It was dry. And he was really upset. He's like, I can't understand this. He goes, come on. So we kept hiking and hiking and hiking up in the Sierra Mountains, and we're getting higher and higher and higher. And finally, we get to the place where he says the water was coming from, and sure enough, it had been blocked up by mud and leaves and sticks and all that stuff. And so we clear it out, and the water starts flowing beautifully. You see, that's the way our conscience should be. It should be flowing beautifully. But too many times it gets cluttered with the things in life that just aren't right, and it keeps our conscience from flowing and from helping us to make these proper decisions. And so we need to do what it says in 1 John 1, 9, where he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to cleanse our minds, so that we're able to understand what it is to have a clear conscience. You see, if someone is going to accuse you of something and say something bad of you, but you have a clear conscience, who, who cares what they say? It doesn't matter. And that's what Peter is alluding to. Look at verse 17. He says, it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If you're doing good, that's okay. Let's go back to suffering. Why is it okay? Well, because suffering helps me identify with Christ. Suffering allows me to help others. Suffering has rewarding glory. So he helps us to understand that we have these responsibilities to practice the purity of mind and to do what it is that brings honor and glory to him. A clear conscience helps us stand courageously, right? Uh, Think of Martin Luther. Remember Martin Luther? He was the little monk that decided that he was going to take that phrase from Romans chapter 1, the just shall live by faith, and he was going to jump on that and do whatever he could to make his church, the Catholic church, better for him. He didn't want to start a new religion. He didn't want to start something else. He wanted to to make his church better. So he wrote prolifically. And the printing press was there to send everything all over the place. And people got upset about it. Especially when he went after these things called indulgences. These indulgences where you pay for this, and you get this piece of paper, and whoever you pray for or do something for, they get out of hell or purgatory. And we're going to use that money to build this beautiful St. Peter's Basilica. And Martin Luther said, well, no, we're not going to because that's not right. And finally, after a couple of years, he has to stand before a council at the Diet of Worms. Remember that? He stands before this council and they say, okay, are these your materials? And they have a table full of things for him to look at. Martin Luther says, yes, they're mine. And then they ask the question, do you recant? Do you say this is all false and all wrong? And one of the things that he said was, my conscience is clear. Here I stand. And unless persuaded by scriptures, I can do nothing else. You see, the courage to stand amidst the suffering 
in spite of things because I have a clear conscience. You see, Peter is telling us to go after and to purify our minds so that we can stand up and do what we need to do. Uh, Peter is reminding us that when you're going through suffering, it's something that you're going to have to handle. You're going to have to do. You're going to have these things that you need to take care of. And he outlines them for us in verses 13 through 17. I have an older son. He's 28. He lives in Indianapolis. When he was little, uh, he was about three, uh, I was working in a church. And uh, the church where we worked, we had a a Thursday, once-a-month ministry called uh, uh, Super 60s. It was for senior adults. And what we would do is we would prepare a meal, serve the meal, and then we'd have a guest speaker come in and talk to them about something. And it was a way to tell people about Christ and share things with them. And he was just little, two or three years old, and he would run around everywhere. And at this particular time, he was in the potty training stage. And you know how it is with potty training. You know, you want to make sure that they uh, have, are motivated by the underwear, right? Well, he had great underwear. It was Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, and there's no way he wanted to mess that up, Right? So he was real proud of that. And so uh, on this particular occasion, my wife is in the kitchen working with these other women, and they're preparing this meal. And my son, he's three, running in and out. Finally, he runs in, and he says to them, there's nothing to fear. Superman is here. And he pulls down his pants and flashes on the Superman symbol, right? And they're all like, aha, that's hilarious, and that's funny. Uh, unfortunately, Superman never showed up, and he really wasn't Superman. And the reason I tell you that is because sometimes that's what we're waiting for. When we're going through difficult things in life, we're waiting for somebody else to come along and say, you know what, let me get you out of this. Instead of saying, you know what, I'm in this. And God has something for me. And I'm going to go through this because that's what he wants me to do. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for what it is that you do through your word. Father, we have nothing to say without your scriptures. If Peter had not written, uh, this would just be an assembly. But because Peter has written, this is a worship service where we worship you and we decide that what we're going to do is live our lives according to what it is your word wants from us. Especially as we go through suffering, allow us, Lord, to always remember that we have something to do in our lives to bring honor and glory to you. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Have a wonderful week.